Welcome to Trib Talk. I'm Jennifer Napier Pierce with the Salt Lake Tribune. Single family homes are part and parcel of the American dream, but so is good health and economic mobility. And according to a new study, health and wealth may be linked to living in more compact town centers, not acreage in the suburbs. And today on the program, we're talking about the study released yesterday by Smart Growth America and the National Institutes of Health and how these conclusions could influence city mayors, city councilmen, urban planners, and of course you as you make decisions on how and where to live. Joining me on the Google Hangout today is Reed Ewing. He's a professor of city and metropolitan planning and director of the Metropolitan Research Center at the University of Utah. He's the lead researcher on this study and he's joining me here in the Tribune newsroom. And Professor Ewing, welcome. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. Also with us, David Berrigan. He's a biologist in the Applied Research Program of the National Cancer Institute, who was also involved in the study, and he's joining us from his office, I believe, Dr. Berrigan, from Bethesda, Maryland? Right now I'm downtown, in downtown Washington, D.C., near DuPont Circle. Terrific. Thank you so much for your time today. And you're welcome to join our conversation as well. Do you think where you live affects your wallet and your health? And do you, the study's findings sort of ring true to you? You can send your thoughts along to the hashtag TribTalk on Twitter and Google+. You can put them in the comment section at sltrib.com, or you can text us, and that number is 801-609-8059. Uh, sprawl, sprawl, you say that word and it's becomes something of a dirty word to a lot of urban planners. Um, uh, Dr. Ewing, define sprawl for us and, and how do you measure it? Well, the, um, the characteristic that uh, kind of characterizes all sprawling development patterns is that things are not close to other things. Uh, and uh, so there's really no alternative to a fairly long trip by automobile. So we, we measure sprawl uh, in our, our study in terms of density. Uh, basically low density is sprawling and, and uh, medium and high density is more compact. Uh, in terms of a mix of land uses, so uh, homes and, and shops and workplaces are fairly close to one another as opposed to segregated from one another. Uh, in terms of centers, uh, having a, a strong downtown uh, and uh, strong suburban centers in, in terms of size, a number of people living in them uh, and their employment. Uh, that's also uh, one characteristic of compact development. Whereas lack of centers, uh, which is sort of characteristic of, of Salt Lake uh, County, uh, we, we have downtown and then there isn't really a, another strong center. Um, that that is uh, what we uh, define as sprawling, and then, then finally, uh, the street network is important. Uh, having uh, an interconnected uh, grid of streets, uh, like the avenues, think of the avenues, as opposed to lots of cul-de-sacs and very large blocks, as in say Draper, uh, that uh, characterizes sprawl on the one hand and compactness on the on the other. So those four together are uh, the, the basis for our sp uh, sprawl rankings. And uh, the higher the score, the more compact uh, Salt Lake uh, County 
and uh, the Salt Lake metropolitan area is slightly more compact than average in the United States. Uh, we're benefited actually from the fact we've got constraints. The, the, the mountains and the lakes constrain our development so we can't do an Atlanta uh, sprawling in all directions. Uh, so Provo is a little more compact, the metropolitan areas, than average for the United States. Uh, Ogden is about average. And um, you, when you say above average, you might think that's good. Well, it's uh, the average is a C. We, we have a, a country where sprawl is the norm, compact development is the exception. So being better than average is not so very good. Mm -hmm. so, so you look at a, a couple of hundred metro areas, you sort of develop this ranking system and develop a sprawl index. Part two of your study, as I understand it, uh, looks at various quality of life issues. Uh, and uh, Dr. Berrigan, maybe you can explain the, the quality of life issues and how that sort of intersects with the sprawl index. Sure. So Reed mentioned the avenues, and that just reminded me that I lived in, I did my PhD in Salt Lake City and we lived in the avenues at that time and in many ways it was a terrific healthy and happy place to live and one of the reasons for that is we could walk places and get more physical activity and had a sense of community, all things associated perhaps with more compact development. On the other hand, there's a, a, um, a downside to the Salt Lake area are high levels of pollution associated with sprawl and the geography there. So the Cancer Institute is really interested in the design of urban areas and communities in part because of the relationship between air pollution and lung cancer and in part because of the relationship of characteristics of the neighborhood to people's levels of physical activity and their access to healthy food, medical resources and the other things that we need for a healthy life. So we're really supporting this kind of research to try to help develop guidance on how best to design our communities to foster health um, as well as to provide places to live and, and uh, um, opportunities for economic development. But so. the conclusion is that there is a, truly a link between where you live and how healthy you can be and when you're in these more compact areas, the more densely populated areas, um, there is uh, a corresponding health and wealth, right? <laughs> there's, there's strong evidence that characteristics of your neighborhood influence your behavior and there are many positive features of compact development but we haven't worked out all the details yet and so Dr. Ewing's sprawl index is going to help more research so we can figure out for what age groups, what income levels, and for what different parts of the country, different kinds of decisions about development can help foster health in the strongest possible way. Mm. This is certainly not the first study where you've looked at sprawl and sort of some of the, the impacts on people's lives. And uh, Dr. Ewing, I guess this is sort of a, a follow-up to earlier studies. How is this study and the conclusions that you've, you've drawn, how, how is it different from, say, a decade ago? Yeah, a decade ago we, we did the uh, first study of, of sprawl and obesity and found there was a link. Uh, it's not the most important factor in obesity, but it is a factor. Uh, the difference between living in a, a New York county, which is Manhattan, and the most sprawling suburb is about six pounds. And we, as you know, have a, an obesity epidemic in the United States. So, so six pounds makes a difference. 
that was a decade ago. That was 2003. Uh, we uh, updated uh, our study. So we had 2010 census data, American Community Service uh, survey data, uh, and data from other sources like uh, local employment dynamics. So part of what we did was just update. But in addition, we uh, refined our sprawl measures. We included a lot of additional variables, which we think are important. For example, uh, the percentage of intersections that are four-way. Uh, urban planners like grids and prefer them to cul-de-sac neighborhoods. And uh, so we were able to capture that, that characteristic through, through a variable. And we added a lot of variables to our, our measures of sprawl. And then, in addition, we uh, looked at other outcomes. We had looked at the relationship between sprawl and obesity back in 2003, but we had not looked at life expectancy. And in this study, we find that uh, people living in more compact areas, and uh, there, there, there are reasons for this, but more compact areas uh, tend to live longer. Uh, the, the difference isn't tremendous, but it is measured in years. And, you know, uh, th there was a, uh, a study not long ago uh, that found that, that uh, there was great uh, disparity in, in uh, life expectancies from one place to another. Uh, the study did not explain why some places people live longer and other places they don't. Uh, so we're trying to provide a, a partial explanation. And the, the reasons, the, the causal mechanisms are things like body mass index. People in sprawling areas have higher body mass indices, which is a measure of overweight, and that, that of course, limits their lifespan uh, because there's so many health problems associated with that, like type 2 diabetes and uh, coronary heart disease. So that's one causal mechanism. Uh, traffic fatalities. Uh, in sprawling areas, the traffic fatality rate is about twice what it is in, in compact areas because people drive so much more. And that, that uh, reduces life expectancy. So uh, we, we looked at other outcomes. Probably the most interesting outcome is uh, upward mobility. Uh, there was a study done by researchers at Harvard and UC Berkeley a few months back that was in the national news and they found that your your chances of progressing from the bottom of the income ladder to the the top varied from place to place and again they didn't have complete explanations so we we looked at differences and we found there was a link to compactness or sprawl you're, you're more likely to move from the bottom 20 percent of the uh, income scale to the top if you live in a more compact area. And the, the reason for that is probably, we, we looked at uh, a bunch of possible reasons, but the, the main reason seems to be that uh, living in a compact place, you have better access to employment. Uh, if you picture a sprawling area where the lower income populations are in the city and the, the jobs are in the suburbs, you can see why having a more compact area with better transit might translate into upward mobility or greater upward, upward mobility.
Mm. We're talking about a new study out that shows living in urban areas can actually be better for your health and your pocketbook. And we're speaking with Dr. Reed Ewing. He's with the Metropolitan Research Center at the University of Utah. Also with us, Dr. David uh, Berrigan. He's with the National Cancer Institute and talking about that study. You're welcome to join us if you've got thoughts, uh, questions. Send them along to the hashtag TribTalk on Twitter and Google+. You can also put them in the comment section right here at SL trib.com or send us a text and again that number is 801-609-8059. Uh, did any of the study findings surprise you because um, there is a perception that in the inner cities uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, I mean grocery stores uh, are, are not regular, readily available to everyone that um, if you live in a city center, there's there is the stereotype that you're poor or drug addicted or um, somehow impoverished. I mean, it seems what you find what you found runs counter to uh, the you know popular conventions out there, um, Dr. Berrigan. Well, one of the things that surprised me is my intuitions about which cities were sprawling and which weren't weren't always true. And so, for example, I, I, I think um, um, the Los Angeles is, didn't come out sprawling even though as, as much as I, I thought it might. And I think that speaks to the importance of developing quantitative indices and, and um, using those rather than our intuition to try to evaluate what the, the best possible decisions are for planners and what the consequences of different choices we make about development are. So that's a, been a a, a surprise and a valuable result of, of, of Reed's work in this area. Mm. Dr. Ewing? Yeah, well, we we did find some things that uh, are not really surprising if you think about them, but uh, some of our findings suggest that sprawl isn't all bad. Uh, for example, while there are much higher uh, fatal crash rates in cities, or in, in suburbs and cities, about twice, as I said before, uh, the number of accidents, uh, traffic accidents, is greater in, in compact areas than sprawling areas. And they're not fatal accidents, but there are more of them. Uh, fender benders, you know, rear end collisions, that sort of thing. And it makes sense because there, of course, is a lot more traffic in cities than there, there is in suburbs. Uh, so that was one thing that uh, kind of surprised us. Uh, there are there are other things. It turns out, and, and this isn't such a surprise, but it it still is a part of full disclosure. Uh, it turns out that housing is less expensive in uh, sprawling areas than compact areas. And if you compare uh, Houston with very affordable housing to a San Francisco, uh, it, it kind of makes sense that housing would be more expensive in the more compact areas. Uh, but transportation is less expensive. There are more options. People don't need to own as many cars living in compact areas. Uh, they can take mass transit. They can walk. So they save money on transportation while they spend more money on housing. And when you put the two together, uh, compact areas have a very slight advantage. And that's a novel finding. And uh, to my knowledge, no one's ever looked at that. Uh, it, it means the compact areas uh, unlike uh, kind of the popular assumption that you're better off living in, in Houston than San Francisco from a cost of living standpoint, that's not true. 
if you factor in transportation costs. But I guess my question is, how do you know that it's related to sprawl at all? Because as you mentioned, I mean, it's, it, it is more expensive, at least property taxes are more expensive in a, uh, a more compact, um, dense, more densely populated area. So um, you have to have more resources. You're essentially wealthier if you live in those cities. How do you know that there's a correlation between the wealth part of this, what you're saying, and just the fact that people can afford to live in a city? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, we, we know because we uh, look at a lot of variables. Uh, we, we do control, for example, for income. Uh, so when we, we say that uh, people spend less of their income on transportation in compact areas than sprawling areas, we, we statistically uh, have controlled for income. We've controlled in many cases for race. The the uh, finding that I mentioned before that uh, people living in sprawling areas tend to weigh more. That that is accounting for their race and their age and their income and other variables. Gender. Uh, uh, men tend to weigh more than women. Uh, Non-whites tend to weigh more than whites. But so we statistically control for those things and look at the independent effect of our compactness or our sprawl measures and that's the, the basis for the conclusion but you cannot in in studies like the this the one we've done you can't be a hundred percent sure and that's the reason why we call and everyone else David others uh, for for more controlled studies um, we've looked at for example people as they move from one place to another and that uh, of course they, they live in one place, more sprawling, move to a more compact place. We look to see if they gain weight when they move. They haven't changed, but their location has changed. And that's the way those studies are done. Mm. Uh, controlling for all the other factors that we can measure, but we can't control for everything. So that's why there is some disagreement on just how costly it is to live in sprawl versus compact places. Mm, interesting another, stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Berrigan? Yes, I was going to say another way to think about or talk about that problem is to imagine the neighborhood could make you have healthier behaviors and be healthier and live longer and, and make it easier for you to get a job and have upward economic mobility, for example. Or people could sort themselves out. So people that like to walk more could move to more walkable neighborhoods, but they would walk more no matter what. And so that problem speaks to whether changing the neighborhood would help change people. And quite a bit of research has developed in that area, and it looks like partly people sort themselves out, but partly the neighborhood really does influence and change behaviors. So that, that means um, that, that thinking about urban planning and using it to promote health is, is a good thing, but maybe not quite, it won't have quite as strong effects as these observational studies suggest. Mm. So it's, it's a mix of those two, two factors. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a question on Twitter from Mike Christensen. Considering the many detriments of sprawl, including air pollution, 
why isn't smart growth more of a priority? Um, I, I, I don't suppose you've heard, uh, Dr. Ewing, but last night the West Jordan City Council um, decided not to pursue a, a transit-oriented development, denser development around a track stop. They said no to that based on the feedback that they got from their residents. Uh, I suppose social pressures have something to do with uh, <laughs> why smart growth isn't uh, more highly promoted in these sprawl areas. Well, that's true, and, and density is controversial, and uh, transit-oriented development isn't for everyone, but we believe, uh, I'm in a group of planners uh, nationally who believe that the, uh, that the public is receptive to walkable neighborhoods. Would, would uh, not everyone, or maybe we're talking about a half, but half of Americans would like to live in, in a more village-like setting where they can get around on foot, uh, they're closer to shopping, so when they have to make a, an auto trip, it's not a 10-minute a trip, it's a 3-minute trip. I, I, I self-selected into the avenues, as I mentioned before, that's where I live. I, I think I mentioned that. Uh, I uh, also, by living there, uh, spend almost no time in my car. I'm, I'm close to campus, I'm close to Gateway, I'm close to downtown, and it's, it's a nice way to live. So there, there are advantages to uh, urban living, and uh, Americans are figuring that out. Now, it takes a long time to, to turn this ship. This, this ship is, you know, a battleship, and, and uh, changing public uh, preferences for maybe more walkable, compact neighborhoods take time. But we know from surveys that empty, nest, empty nesters, uh, you know, baby boomers whose kids have left home and are no longer uh, necessarily living in the suburbs because they don't need the, the better schools. Empty nesters uh, are often opting to downsize and live in more urban places. We know the millennials, the, uh, the younger people of today, younger adults, uh, prefer more urban living. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. Uh, even Gen Xers do. So we think in time uh, there will be greater acceptance of smart growth, growth on the part of the public and that the, uh, the uh, uh, policymakers, the city councils, the uh, Utah Departments of Transportation will uh, consider that when they make their decisions. And we as a, as a region have already made a, a decision to invest in transit. We have one of the, the best light rail systems in the country. So we've made a, a decision. And now the question is whether we're going to capitalize on that, that transit accessibility by allowing dense mixed-use development near transit stops. And it's a, a shame that uh, West Jordan would have turned down a TOD because that's where we, we want the, the density. That's where we want the walkability right near transit and I, I did not know that they had turned down a, a, TOD, a TOD proposal but other places are approving TOD and it's proving to be popular if you think of Daybreak Daybreak is a extremely popular development it's going to have a lot of uh, urban uh, housing around its transit stop 
and it will be uh, and is already very walkable. So, so something's happening, and maybe West Jordan Jordan hasn't gotten the the idea yet, but uh, uh, Sandy has, and Salt Lake City has, and South Jordan has, and other places are getting uh, the idea that there are all alternatives to sprawl. I, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I guess I'd ask each of you, and maybe this uh, folds right into what you just said, Dr. Ewing, I mean, how are you hoping that people use the information that you've, you've found in your research? Well, uh, go ahead, David. Oh, I was just, just going to say that, you know, when we get discouraged about the pace at which ideas about better planning, development, and transit are being integrated into um, policy of the states, in the health area, we often point to the tobacco example where, um, you know, it, from the, the late 1950s and early 60s when perhaps some 50% of the U.S. smoked to now when more like 20% smoked, it, it, it took 50 years, um, but it, and it was a gradual transformation. And I see us now about 10 years into a, a, a period in our history where we're trying to develop healthier communities by, that will foster healthier choices in, in the U.S. and in that way make people happier and, and uh, have better lives. And so we're in the, in the first 20% of that, that period of change. And so I hope people, researchers and planners, will use these data to help figure out the best way to proceed with, with planning and transportation decisions to foster health for all. That's our dream. Mm. Uh, Dr. Ewing, final word? Uh, I totally agree with David. Uh, we're, we're really aiming at this point at policymakers. Uh, the, the, the report which was put out by Smart Growth America, uh, we had uh, a mayor on our, our conference call uh, yesterday who, who's a, a believer that, uh, that uh, we can do better than we've done in terms of development. Uh, we're, we're aiming at city councils uh, county boards, uh, DOTs, Departments of Transportation, uh, they're the people who uh, we think are, can make better decisions and uh, the public uh, will also over time come along but uh, first we've got to reach the uh, decision makers. Dr. Ewing and Dr. Berrigan, thank you both very much for the time. I'm grateful. Thank you so much. And you can find a lot more coverage about smart growth and uh, urban transit at sltrib.com. I'm Jennifer Napier-Pierce with the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks for tuning in to Trip Talk. We'll see you next time.